Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see y'all. Y'all had a good week. I know many of you probably had trying weeks as well. Um, wanna, I feel I feel bad. I forgot to lift uh, our other elder, Sean, up. He is um, staying home today because. What had happened is he had family in town, and apparently the family that he had in town came in contact with others who had COVID, and um, they went and got checked out. They did have it, and so uh, Sean wanted to just keep playing safe and just said, hey, listen, I've been around others, close contact with COVID, so um, I'm just going to stay put today, and I, I thought it was a good idea as well. And. Um, and so that's why he's not here. So I, I would like, uh, I, I will pray for him in, in a few minutes here when we open up a prayer. But turn your Bibles, if you don't mind, uh, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. Such a powerful psalm, by the way. I don't know about any of you, but this psalm is ministered to my heart and so many different ways and so many different times. It's it's kind of a monumental psalm, if you will, a uh, place to to run to um, to kind of get yourself squared away and sorted out. Let us go ahead and read. I'll be reading the the entire psalm, and then from there we'll move forward. <clears throat> psalm seventy three, starting in verse one. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compassed them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly. Concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I'll speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, and ignorant I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. 
Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Father, we just come before you in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to the throne of grace, to the precious blood, the sinless blood of our Savior. And Lord, we don't come to you cowering. But the Bible says that we can come in confidence, fully trusting in God. Lord, we would ask today that you help us hear the voice of our Savior through the preaching of your word. Lord, help us to draw an eye to the fire of your Holy Spirit today, Lord. Strengthen us and empower us, enable us. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Help us to put any obstacle that would seek to get in the way of worshiping you today, that we, were, we would be able to put it aside, Lord, and kill it even if necessary. Lord, have your way today in this congregation. Lord, I ask you to move mightily. I ask you, Lord, that you would come and and bind every evil and wicked and intruding spirit that would seek to interrupt this service today in Christ's name. Lord, we seek your face today. We worship you in truth and in spirit, Lord. We're not here for any other reason. We're not here for ourselves, Lord God, that we would somehow build a name for ourselves. But Lord, we're here to worship you, Lord, and to honor you and to lift you up and to exalt you. In the mighty name of Christ, I pray. Amen, and so be it. Amen. I took the, uh, really the first verse of the psalm, uh, which reads today, is really the, the uh, foundation, really, of the entire psalm, where the psalmist says, Truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. Because this, I believe, really is the premise and the whole idea and apologetic of Psalm 73. Because if we do not believe God is good, then life itself becomes really intolerable. It becomes, even at times, unbearable. Our life will not be marked with endurance if we don't believe that God is good, but instead with terror, dread, fear, and anxiety. In John C. Johnson's work, in his classic work on the Covenanters, the Scottish Covenanters, he writes this during the times of the uh, Reformation. He says, it was the stern and tremendous theology of John Calvin which gave birth to the Covenanters. And perhaps no other theology could have been of any service in an iron age like theirs. What they learned from it was an awesome sense 
of the sovereignty of God, a passion for righteousness and liberty, a sense of the vast issues of human destiny, and above all, a resoluteness and certainty of faith which made them like the glittering sword of God amid the demoralization of their times. I think the church of Christ during dark hours should be that glittering sword of God during dark times. Not the cowering body of Christ, but is seen as a glittering sword in the times of demoralization in our day. Knowing that God is good, perfect, holy, just, gracious, and merciful allows us to stay the course even when life doesn't make sense, when suddenly our lives are take an unpredictable turn for the worse, our hopes at sometimes are dashed to pieces. What seems like at times a betrayal, a cunning trick to demolish our existence becomes the platform to our growth and success in the gospel. History is covered with men and women of God overcoming what would seem as unbearable disappointments. With steel-like faith that points to a stable, loving, heavenly Father that declares to an unbelieving world that God is in control, but yet He is truly good to Israel. I believe this verse actually sums up the big idea that the psalmist Asaph was under the power of the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate to the people of God. Asaph did not write this psalm in a way in which he did not know what the end of the psalm would say. He was writing from a place of experience. Not just an experience, but a crisis in his theology. His whole view of God was crushed. His nation was crushed. His life was devastated and his present hopes were shattered, leaving him stifled and disillusioned. His view of God's providence, God's protection, and God's promises all came to a screaming halt. We have to ask ourselves this question because in light of Psalm 73, it's, it's good to understand who was Asaph. Who was this guy? Who was this man who penned this tragic psalm? Asaph was around in some of Israel's most glorious and tragic days. He was there with King David when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Jerusalem in about 1000 to 995 BC. Apparently David had thought Asaph quite talented, so much so that he put him in charge of the music before the Ark of the Covenant which scripture shows that he kept this position at least until the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem for almost 40 years. 40 years. Interesting. At that time, the worship services of the tent of meeting in the tabernacle were consolidated in the temple, and the Ark of the Covenant was reinstalled in its rightful place in the Holy of Holies next to the holy place. Asaph served in Jerusalem for all of David's reign and no doubt set music many um, of the psalms that God had given to David. 
interesting. So you're already kind of getting a, a, a general understanding of the responsibilities and the accountabilities and the work that Asaph was called to. And you can see the gravity, right? The gravity of what um, his calling had taken along with it, his responsibility and obviously the accountability, but also the dismay a lot of times that can come with a calling such as this. And I think it's so phenomenal that we can read in Scripture and see so much transparency um, from those who pen the word under the power and inspiration of the Holy Scripture. But we can see the transparency and the reality and the humility and the vulnerability of people uh, and the things that they go through in life and how if we're not careful, if we don't heed the warnings that we read in Scripture, we too can fall prey to a lot of these situations that we see in the Word of God. Such as Asaph, as he was, you know, he he was put in a very prominent position. He was there in, in, in some of the greatest moments in Old Testament history. The work that God had called him to would have been a work that would have been seen with great depth and great gravity. And he was really in the midst of this. I mean, think about it. He was there with King David. He was there uh, in the midst of all these things that were happening, uh, in, 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 uh, leading in front of the Ark of the Covenant, um, leading worship to the most holy God. I mean, this can't, I mean, being called to a ministry like this has its pros and has its cons, which we'll see as we move forward. He was in Jerusalem uh, when God had gave David the great promise that David would have a son who would be the Messiah and reign forever. He saw the death of David, the ascension of Solomon, and the building of the temple. He thought he was standing literally on the verge of Israel's millennium. Asaph at this time was viewing life for what we would say from the mountaintop. This was supposed to be Israel's golden age, the age in which the apparent blessings of the Most High would rest upon the nation and the kingdom would now be completed. But, as we all know, that didn't happen. The exact opposite actually happened. After Solomon's death, Asa, a now very old man, instead of seeing the, the kingdom inaugurated, he saw David's kingdom torn in two. You think about his career and coming to the conclusion and the apex of his ministry, thinking he's ushering in the kingdom here, but instead he sees the kingdom torn in two. If there was ever a man who had an excuse for being disillusioned, Asaph was that man. Instead of seeing what he thought would be the fulfillment and establishment of the kingdom of God, he witnessed unparalleled, unparalleled destruction and judgment. The kingdom was torn in two. Gross tyranny and self-absorbed pleasure-seeking kings were instituted into power until the final judgment came with the destruction of the temple and many of Asaph's family perished, died along with it. But we know from the finishing lines of this tragic chapter in Scripture, Asaph comes to his senses and returns to the presupposition that
that God is truly good to Israel. He says in verses 25 and 26, Whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. These two perspectives are what I'd like to examine this morning. I, I believe that there's two responses seen in the life of Asaph, of Asaph as portrayed in this particular psalm. Um, the first perspective, or we could say the first response, would be what we could call a worldly response. A worldly response. Not in the sense of just someone wanting to be gross or someone that's just wrapped up in worldliness, but... In the beginning verses of Psalm 73, he talks about himself in the sense of being disillusioned and not having the right worldview, of not really seeing the goodness of God, not standing upon the very presupposition that he begins the introduction of this chapter and ends with. Obviously, he had went through the experience before he wrote the chapter, but the chapter is just a short bio of his life in two different components. We see the beginning factor of his dis disillusionment and how we too can become disillusioned if we're not careful. We can fall into that same place. And, and there's a lot of warnings uh, that, that are, are within uh, this chapter to us as the people of God who can fall into the area of danger of, of being almost held captive by ministry and not being held captive by Christ. And if we're not careful, we can turn our ministries into Christ. And that can be a place of affection and drive in our lives. And the scary thing is, it becomes our identity. Christ no longer becomes the, our identity. Our, our calling now is everything that preoccupies our life and existence. It's all around that. And anytime that particular area, that area in our lives gets attacked, we feel attacked. Because it's not about Christ, but we can be deceived in thinking it is. We can invest a lot of time and emotion and energy into our callings. And through it all, through all of our zeal, we can miss Christ in that. And that's a scary thing too. And that's a warning. And the worldly response is really dealing with the fact that he was operating under a different worldview. Uh, he had a different thought in his mind. Let's go through some of these verses um, and, and, and kind of pinpoint where this all began. I mean, Asaph's first perspective and worldview came from a place of disappointment and despair, seeing life through the false lens of a deceived heart, then awakened to the truth and reality of what many call, what we would call the meaning of life, the true meaning of life, that is. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, and this is where it begins, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And I really, you know, would ask you this morning to, to contemplate on what's being said. You know, meditate upon these words and, and, and how they apply to you this morning. 
He says, for there is no pains in their death as he defines the world. He defines the wicked. He defines the ungodly. And he says, but their strength is firm. Basically declaring that his strength wasn't firm. His strength, as it seemed, was failing. They are not in trouble as other men, and nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. They scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. Do you see the worldview issue here? You see the problem here? He is dealing with this whole situation that we have to be careful that we're not looking and judging people based upon their circumstances. Because the way God deals with his people a lot of times in our lives is through tragedy, through affliction, um, uh, through all types of, of, of situations that, that challenges adversity. I mean, this is the way of the cross. Jesus said, all of those who come after me must take up their cross. They must die and follow me. I mean, this is, a, this is a, a very serious issue here when it comes to defining the Christian church. We're not defined by plump prosperity. And you can't judge my holiness by my bank account. It may look like everything is going wrong in my life, that my life is literally falling apart. But that doesn't mean I'm ungodly. That could be very well the very path that God has given me in order to transform me more into the likeness of Christ. The gold and treasure of this is sanctification. It's not about me. It's for the glory of Christ. It's about my life isn't given to me so I can just have fun and be living in pleasure my whole life. My life is given me, given to me to glorify my God. I'm here for Him to utilize me as He sees fit. This isn't about my success. This is about being faithful and loyal to my God who in His mercy saved a vile wreck like me. And then on top of that, chooses to use me for his glory. And if he wants to take my predetermined ideas of success and destroy them in order to create godliness in my life, then so be it. The issue is, is when that happens and we don't take it the right way, we have a false worldview, like the beginning of Asaph's life, and we don't take it the right way and we respond the wrong way. And that's where it's dangerous. You begin throwing a worldly fit because you're not getting your way. And America's spoiled. That's how we function. We ban and delete everything we don't like. And you can't ban and delete people. Just because you don't like something or you're uncomfortable, you can't just hit a button and remove people. We're falling under that whole worldview in our day and age because we live in a total social media world. So much so, we intoxicate ourselves so much so in this world that when we come and we have to literally talk to real living people and things don't go our way, you're looking for the ban and delete button and there's none there. And it forces us into a situation to grow and to be godly and to mature in our faith because this is what honors Christ. And we have to come to the realization that you're not on this planet for yourself. You're on this planet to serve the Lord. We have to understand that if there is just a constant overwhelming desire for you just to be in the world all the time, I would strongly encourage you to examine yourself to see if you're still in the faith. And I don't say that to be pushy and harsh. I would say that as, as, as a, a loving leader of this church, 
that for you who are sitting here today, the last thing you need is pandering. You, you need um, encouragement, sure, but we also need a, a conviction and a realization of what the true Christian faith looks like. He goes on to say in verse 9, They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, he says. And this is where he lays it out. He says, behold, just so you know, this whole preliminary discussion that I had here, these are the ungodly. These are the ungodly. And then he goes on to say, who are always at ease. Always at ease. Always have to be comfortable. Everything has to be convenient. They increase in riches. No, nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with, with being wealthy. But there's something wrong is when that wealth owns us and our things preoccupy and demand all of our affection. Surely, he says, compared to all of this, I mean, take for what he's saying here because he's teaching us something here in the Word. He's showing us here that we can fall into the same mindset because he says, I mean, how many times have you found yourself, maybe not saying this word for word, but how many times have you personally have found yourself saying similar, similar things under your breath when you don't get your way? Walking away and you whisper out things like, you know, you, you begin the blame game and start, you know, going through all these negative, negative thoughts. You say, Surely, you know, I have must have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. I mean, are these bad things? Is it bad to be chastened every morning? Is it bad to have anxiety? Is it bad to be depressed? You see what I'm saying? We, some, we look at these things, we're like, whoa, man, you know, these aren't things that the Christian should ever go through. Really? Have you read the book of Job? You read the Psalms of David? Have you been through there and seen the darkness that these men have had to deal with? You read about Esther's being completely broken over the people of God? I mean, you can define it however you want, but these aren't people skipping through a bed of roses. Their lives are filled with tragedy, filled with adversity, filled with pressure and antagonism from the world. But they responded in the right way. As in Asaph, he does as well. He goes on to say, If I said this, I speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought on how to understand all of this, he says it was too painful for me. So it's just too painful for me to be able to put all this together. And, and it, could have, it could be because of his long-standing career. I mean, he literally was there with King David, by the way. He was there when the kingdom became divided. He saw this. He saw the judgments come. He saw these things. He saw his family go down in judgment instead of receive the, the um, blessings of the kingdom come forward in that day, knowing that the blessings of the kingdom resided in our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. He saw these things. He participated in these things. I mean, this is not just some fictitious character we're reading about. This isn't Aesop's fables. This is a reality. I mean, this really happened. He really experienced these things. He really did live on high for 40 years. And then to see all these things happen must have been crippling. Must have been crippling to him. 
So much so that he just couldn't put the pieces together in his mind because it was just too painful. It's too painful to try to put this together. I just don't get it. I just don't understand it. How come God, all these people that don't love you have such fun and happy and wealthy, pleasure-living lives. They have more than they could ever imagine. And yet I'm waking up every morning with disabling anxiety. Why do I have to be chastised all the time? Why do I have to live this way? Why am I every single day plagued with these burdens? They're not. You must love them more than me. You must hate me because I go through all these things? Am I not praying enough or reading the Bible enough? Am I not doing good enough? Lord, are these just are these just responses from an angry God to a disobedient person? Or is this the loving, sovereign hand of God who loves me so much that he will chastise me and take me through the fire in order to change and transform me, not only for my good, but ultimately for his glory? Asaph was a worship leader. We see him, he penned Psalms 50 and 73 and 83 are attributed to him. And he was an after time celebrated as a seer as well as a musical composer. Asaph also left behind him a legacy. They were called the sons of Asaph. And they were likely a guild of skilled poets and singers modeling themselves musically after Asaph, their master. Even church musicians today can be considered at some level children of Asaph. Obviously, if they're following the biblical pattern of worship. I believe what we are seeing here is a man who spent most of his life leading worship for his king. He was a minister and a master of music. He led the king's choir. He lived and served under the power and the presence of Almighty God and was ordained as one who not only led others into worship, but was there to usher in the presence of God. He lived an exalted life, a life of absolute extreme importance. He came from uh, he came from this high position for many years. And this particular calling would have been exhilarating. It would have been intense and probably, if we we're honest, according to Asaph, his own confessions, vain. And that's a challenging place to come to in, in our lives. We can come to that conclusion that a majority of my ministry energy has been vain. It's... It, a lot of it really hasn't been for the glory of God. Have you heard people that use excuses for what they want to do? It almost seems like something that's a little bit worldly in the way that, it, that, it, that it's displayed. And they say, well, I'm just doing this for the glory of God. But in reality, obviously, we, we don't know their true motives. But there seems to be this, this hidden agenda deep within, really, is for the glory of themselves. And this is how you can usually find is that when you confront them on it, their reaction to it. Their hostility towards the fact that you would even consider this is a true indication is probably what it is. And this is where we truly have to be careful and, and be careful. I mean, there's, I, mean um, I had 13 years of street ministry and open-air preaching all over the world. Um, and I can just honestly confess today that, not, I mean, obviously not all of it, there was a, there was a lot of vanity in it. Um, there was. There was a lot of... Uh, because if you're not careful, you don't put up the right um, safeguards, you can kind of 
believe what other people tell you. And you can kind of believe the things that are going on as some kind of indication that you're doing something spectacular and that you're extra special. And we have to be really careful because the scriptures don't say that anybody's extra special. Going up, this what I'm doing today doesn't make me more special than anybody else. I'm not the Pope. This is this is this is this isn't that whole reality that doing things in the church somehow has more credence and value to those doing things outside of the church. This is where the Reformation came in. During the times of the Reformation, when uh, Luther translated um, Latin into the modern German vernacular, and they finally got the, have the Word of God to the common people and began to read the Word of God, they began to understand that God wanted to be involved in every arena and facet of their lives, even the workplace. It wasn't just inside of the mother church. Is that God wanted to be involved in the lives of His people on all levels. And this is when Reformation came forward. People began to realize that I'm not going to go into this building and listen to some guy blab in Latin, can't understand it, never using the scriptures, and then go out and feel condemned and have to give money to them to be saved. They understood that God wanted a relationship with them and wanted to be involved in whatever they're doing. So what does this mean? This means I can go to work with a smile on my face because I realize that God's given me gifts, talents, and abilities to honor Him and to glorify Him and to be a blessing to those who are around me. I don't have to go to my secular job and say, well, this has no worth and no value in it because it's not church work. No, God is beyond the church doors, trust me. His kingdom reaches into every venue of life. And He calls us to glorify Him and to be ministers in every reality of life, to be an influence to wherever God calls us and to be an influence there. And this is, this is the, the mighty power of the Word of God and the God who's created us and saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is why we don't have to be troubled and like other people are troubled. We have to understand that we're not circumstantial Christians, that God has put us here for a reason. We're not here because of some cosmic burp. We didn't come from some slime pit. We didn't evolve from apes. We were created in the image of God. We all had the same parents. We're of one blood, as the Bible says in the book of Acts. And we all have Adam and Eve as our parents. We're all born in sin. And we can only be rescued from sin through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this identity crisis that Asaph had probably had, he had probably lost it within his ministry. To such an extent, it became him and he lost sight of God. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please. Turn your Bibles to um, Revelation. Chapter 2, verse 2, um, where, where Jesus calls out the uh, church of Ephesus. <clears throat> chapter, two, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says to the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. It's a good thing. And thou hast tried them which say that they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars, and hast borne and has patience, and for thy name's sake has labored, and you have not fainted. Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, I have something against you, because you have left your first love. You know, here's spectacular ministry going on, all kinds of things that they're doing right. But in all of their busyness and all of their ministry, they've lost Christ in it all. 
And this is a warning from Scripture. And I believe this points back to Asaph. The same thing. Within all of his ministry and all of the responsibilities and all these great and marvelous things he got to do, and I'm sure he got this um, reputation by others as well, the accolades of men, you know, he got lost in that. And in that, he lost his first love. He lost his reality and this um, relationship with his God. This is his worldly response. And we have to ask ourselves this morning, uh, are we guilty of the same thing? I mean, some of us maybe, you know, have a lot of very strong gifts and talents that God has given them. And at the same time, you have found your identity, your rest, uh, and your worldview is all just tied up in your calling and not in Christ. And I would appeal to you this morning that, you know, if this is the case, um, Come back to come back to Christ. Come back to Christ. Regardless of what's going on in your life, ministry-wise. Remember, your main ministry is Christ and your love for Him. This is the biblical response, which we're going to deal with now, the second point here. Asaph, he really had a wake-up call, really. This is what we would almost could define as a biblical revival. He came to true biblical Repentance. We don't hear that word much anymore either. Um, no one really likes to preach against sin or call people to repentance anymore because everybody gets offended about everything. Um, but here it looks as though, you know, he uh, came to true biblical repentance and really saw the reason for his existence. In verse 16, it says that Aesop said, when I pondered, another word for this would be, when I meditated to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight. Now it wasn't so much the troublesome of, of seeing his situation in light of the world and the ways of the world, which really troubled him to such an extent. It pained him to such an extent. It troubled him to such an extent. He couldn't even put the pieces together. But now, he says, when I pondered to understand this, he was kind of troubled now at himself that he didn't get it. After 40 years, you don't get it. And now he gets it because he says, I didn't get it. Notice how these are connected together. It's meditation and him coming into the sanctuary of God. It wasn't separated, but it was together. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then, then, he says, I perceive their end. It was at that very startling moment in his life, he was awakened of the reality of the end of the wicked. And his end. Because that would be the opposite. The antithesis of the wrath of God falling upon the wicked wasn't going to fall upon him regardless of how many, how much wrath that he had to sustain in the world. How much hard times in the world. That this wasn't going to be his lot once he passed through this world. His lot was going to be with Christ and the all these um, prosperity-filled mocking people were going to spend their eternity in hell. And this was a true reality that woke him up. I'm not sure what it was. We obviously know that he had, he had meditated on it to understand this, but also we know that the quickening came when he walked into the sanctuary of God. Something with a combination of those two seemed to be the magic bullet that woke him up to the startling reality. You say, wow. 
Where have I been? He goes on to say, he says this, this was Asaph's turning point where after much pondering he entered into the sanctuary of God and there he sees this sobering reality and frightening end of the wicked. But also he's ripped out of the cradle of self-pity and contempt for God into the adoration and startling reality of what life truly means. To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, to fear God and to obey Him. He goes on to say in verse 18, Surely you set them in slippery places. Oh, but they seem to be in all the mansions and palaces of life. But let me tell you, those mansions and those palaces are slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, he says. I was like a beast before you. I was like a, a beast? I was an animal. I was a beast to believe like this. No, I wasn't out looking at porn and doing all these things, but just this reality and my theology and my view of God made me like a beast before you because my view of God was terribly destroyed or distorted and perverted. It wasn't a reality. It wasn't truth that I was living in. I had a false view of God. I had the Santa Claus image of God that had been completely destroyed, and now I realize the true God of Scripture. This is a terrifying statement and just this, this awakening that one has. And, and you know, I, I pray that we too, as the people of God, understand, you know, I don't, if someone doesn't understand their sin, they don't understand the gravity and the enormity of their transgressions against a holy God. If they don't see their crimes against God the way God sees them, it's very difficult to appreciate the cross. To love Christ and to see what he's done because you don't think you're that bad a person. Because the Bible says in Proverbs that most men think they're good. We think we're good people. We're not that bad. We're not like the serial killer on TV. We're not that bad. But the reality is you are that bad. And God's holy law sees you as that bad. So while I've never murdered anybody, we ever hated anybody? Because Jesus said if you've ever hated anybody, that you are a murderer. And you deserve the same judgment. It's easy to watch television and watch YouTube and spend the afternoon point fingers at all the ugliness in the world and never come to the conclusion of just how depraved we are. And you have to see yourself the way God sees you with His law, that we're not good, no one's good. That our righteousness is like filthy rags and that we need the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe only then when we come to this conclusion and we see ourselves in truth, we'll come to that awakening reality that, listen, it's the goodness of God that I trust in. God is good no matter what this world throws at me. I know at the end of the day, no matter what, even if I have to die, that God is good. And whatever He's doing is good and is right. He's not going to make any kind of mistake with my life. It's not a big accident. A cosmic blurt that I'm here. For such a time as this, Esther cried out. I came into the kingdom. And it's the same with us. You're not here by accident. You didn't get pulled into a world 
that you should have said, well, I was just born out of season. You weren't. Whatever's going on, I hear people say, well, I never want to bring my kids up in this world today. I'm not going to have kids. I don't want to bring them into this world. But the reality is, do you understand? It's not your world. Your kids belong to God. And if God wants to bring kids into this world through you, we submit to that. Obviously, I'm not saying that um, you know we need to have so many family members and so many kids to be declared holy. It's not the doctrine that I'm, I'm pushing. What I'm saying is that we're okay to have kids in dark hours. It's okay to have children in terrible times because God isn't thrown off course. God doesn't need our wisdom. We need his wisdom. It's always above ours. We have to understand that. He goes on to say, you hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And afterward, after all is said and done, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I have in heaven but you, Lord? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. Obviously, you've seen that. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you, they shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all of your works. Asaph saw himself in truth. As a beast before God in all of his unbelief. He had a lightning rod awakening, a revival of God, a remembrance and return to his first love and the realization that God is good despite ourselves, despite our circumstances, despite our agendas, despite our ideas and, and the great plans we thought our lives should be. God is good. No, truly good. Truly God is good to Israel. Asaph reeling almost seems like his demise and fall that ended up turning out to be the very ingredients to bring him to truth and the sobering reality of his God that he worshipped his entire life. I'll lay out a couple application points before closing. Um, Some reminders here in Scripture that we could um, take with us as we leave for the week and be reminded of what we heard this morning that we just... Um, don't fall into this vain practice of just coming in for a Sunday ritual and then heading out the door and just kind of going along with the, with, with the ways of life that we would um, secure these words in our heart and we would obey God. And the application point this morning is just remember, truly God is good. In our theology, listen, will always determine our methodology. Your view of God will always determine your actions. In everything that you do, everything you say, everything you think, every action you take is all governed by your view of God. Does that make sense? This is why theology is so important. Your right theology is important because it dictates what you do and how you believe and how you act and even how you respond when problems come. Your theology will always determine your methodology. This is why, you know, when, when, when this is why, like you read through scripture, when, when, Pastors were continually contending for the truth and protecting protecting the sheep from false doctrine, false prophets, false teachers coming in. It was his responsibility to safeguard the people of God because he knew if they got bad, rotten theology, it was going to produce damning results. It's extremely important to remember your theology today is that God is good and that will never change. Many of you may be going through some very disappointing times right now. Very difficult, challenging, adverse times. Let me just say something. I'm not here to minimize your pain. Um, the Bible says we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to walk 
together as a church through those dark hours. Not to push the dark dark hours aside and give them self-help, but recognizing and embracing the dark areas and dark times and walking through those areas with one another. He said, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, he talked about his affections. I desire nothing on earth. Asking God to bring us to a point in our lives where it may not happen overnight, probably take the rest of our lives, for God to totally kill out those things in our lives that seem to strangle um, as God being our ultimate default. But as for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. And this was this finishing thought it, it, with, with the beginning and, and his, his presupposition. He said, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And it's extremely important. Which brings us to the second point. Asaph demonstrated true humility by his transparency. He was vulnerable. You know why um, a lot of times, even in ministry or even with everything we do, it's dictated by our shame. You know, our shame a lot of the times is people put shame on us to get us to behave in a certain way. You know, someone like will flatter you and say good stuff about you just because ultimately they want you to agree with them and, and, and ultimately bow down to their ways, right? Flattery is a form of hatred. But also, you know, you, you, we need to demonstrate true transparency and be vulnerable. Be vulnerable and be open. Obviously, not just throw your trash out everywhere in front of people, but there are places, especially here in the stable community of Christ, where we should be able to come in and be able to um, be vulnerable to one another. There's nothing worse, right? You don't get it from the world. I mean, maybe you do. I mean, the sad thing is a lot of times because the church acts in such a way that they act, people go to the world because the church isn't being the church. They're the most judgmental, self-righteous, pharisaic people on the planet. You can't talk to anybody. So they go to the world. They go to the bar, which is sad. It should never be. But we should be as the fellowship of Christ we should be a place where it would be conducive for people to come in and demonstrate true humility, true transparency. Be open. You don't have to be a, a performance junkie or a show-off or a pretender. But people know, this is what I'm struggling with. This is the problem, difficulties that I have. And, 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 and they will be quickly to want to, you better be quick about it. We all better be quick about jumping in and, and helping our brothers and sisters through any of these situations. He says, Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, he says, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 10 and 11, uh, Paul said, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, transparent, my manner of life, he says, Purpose and faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them, he says, all, out, of, out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, listen, we live in a very, very strange time. At least it's strange to me. It's not strange to God. But there are a lot of things that are going on in our world today that should cause us to rise up and, ha and have discernment and not be indoctrinated by a worldview that's antichrist. 
And there's a lot of indoctrination going on through the media. <clears throat> that if we're not careful, if we feed off this stuff continually, right, we develop what? Fear. And we're scared and, and, and we begin to look for another Messiah, the government, to save us. Men to save us because they've brought us to such despair and trickery. Listen, we are the people of God. We're not to be seduced by the world. But we're to hold firm to the gospel and understand we're not going to be like the world. We're going to be a different people, as the scriptures tells us. And the third point, last one, Asap, Asap stopped relying on his success and truly rested in Christ. He said, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the end result. This is, this is where I'm going and this is where I'm headed. I know where I'm going with my life. This short little blurb and hiccup of time, you know, it's like, who's got time to mess around and play around? We, we don't have all the time in the world. Uh, God's got a million ways to take us out. Trust me, we could go at any moment. It's like 160,000 people die every 24 hours, 86 per minute. Um, we're not promised another breath. Let us utilize our time for the glory of God. And let us not trust in anything else. Don't trust in your, your gifts. Don't trust in your talents. Don't trust in your performance. But trust and rest in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, God is truly good. He is truly good. And this time and hour almost demands true Christianity. Our nation demands it. True believers. A, a true godly church. While many churches are closing their doors, and all kinds of things are happening right now, this country and land need true biblical Christian churches and true biblical Christians. It, it is a demand of the hour. So let us be about our Father's work and about His business and, and, and ask God, God, help me because I am being affected by all these things that I'm hearing and I feel like I'm pushing a corner and I, and I don't want to be fearful. I want to be brave. And ask God to empower you and cause you to stand in this hour in history. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the life of Asaph. We thank you for the, the words that were penned by him through the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. We take these words to heart today, Lord. And we truly know that you are good, Lord. But let this be a true realization in our lives. And if we don't believe this or we have a false understanding of who you are, let us quickly repent and run to the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to be true worshipers, those that worship you in spirit and in truth. Be glorified this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so be it. Well, let us turn now to, uh, this is actually a perfect time because we're going to take communion. Um, obviously, we, we, don't, we don't have a, a closed communion. Um, everybody who's a born-again believer it is freely um, to part, freely can partake um, in communion with us today. I mean, we'd love to love to have you and love to celebrate this this time with you. If you have not been 
converted and you're not a Christian, please don't partake in the elements. Um, these are obviously for Christians um, to partake in. Uh, but if you want to be a Christian, then repent of your sin and turn towards Christ and he will save you. Um, and I, I do appeal to you today, if you are in that place where you just don't don't know, um, because the Bible says you can know. You don't have to die with a question mark on your life. You truly are in that place where you don't you don't know God. I, I would appeal to you lovingly to come to Christ. Come to him and he will save you and make you new and prepare you for heaven. So here's how we do it in here um, as far as communion. I'm going to go through some of the verses and um, give us some time to prepare our hearts. We, we um, make sure it's out there. We put the communion out uh, in the foyer there so you can, you can take it with your family, you can take it with your wife. Um, so you can pray, spend time with the Lord, and when you feel like you're ready, you can just go ahead and, and freely partake of communion together with your family or however you want to do that. It's out there. So um, that's normally how we've been doing it. So hopefully uh, this will work for you this morning. Um, let's read a few verses here um, to kind of give us some encouragement for what we're doing. Paul said, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, so let it eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh to damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let us take some time now. I'm going to pray. And then you are free to take as much time as you like and you are free to go ahead and partake of the Lord's Supper. Brother Tim, would you mind just opening those doors, please? And Let's pray. Father, we just are so thankful. Um, for the communion table and for this ordinance, Lord. We're, we're grateful, Lord, and we do want to remember you. We're thankful for your body. We're thankful for your blood. We're thankful for the opportunity to partake in this ordinance that declares the gospel, the beautiful gospel of Christ. Thank you, Lord. Help us to meditate and, and to ponder our lives and if there's anything there, any offenses or bitterness or unforgiveness, let us come clean this morning, Lord. But I ask you now to bless this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.